You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hello, Stu Goldsmith here, deep in the COVID trenches and uh, very happy and optimistic and upbeat despite producing an inhuman amount of mucus. Uh, That aside, uh, today's episode is with the phenomenal Callie Beaton, uh, who you could be forgiven, I suppose, uh, when you first encountered Callie for thinking, oh, right, this is, I get this angle. She used to be in the boardroom. uh, Now she's in the green room. I literally couldn't help writing that in the show notes. (laughs) So, so much does her origins story lend itself to that kind of um, easy uh, PR idea. Um, But to be fair to her, Callie has spent a long time putting in the hours and is now a really excellent comic. And we're going to get into that. We're going to talk about how she has to continue to unlearn her natural authority uh, in order to be vulnerable on stage. We'll find out how her, her polish enabled her to hide in the early part of her comedy career. And we'll talk about why happiness is a U shaped curve. We're going to get right into some therapy stuff uh, right from the top and there are of course 25 minutes of extra content available exclusively to the insiders club including Callie on a moment of stark realization that it's okay to be flawed uh, on her part in bringing South Park to the world and whether fuckum is in fact a useful mantra uh, all of that available at comedianscomedian.com/insiders let's get stuck into this interview with Callie Beaton <laughs> Go to drama school. I went to Goldsmiths. Yeah, I did drama at Goldsmiths. Oh yeah, right. Yeah. I didn't know they did drama. Okay. Ah, welcome to the podcast, <laughs> Callie Beaton. To give you your stand-up comedy name. Yes. Oh, which, you've been doing your research. A, I see. Well, your your real name is Caroline, and you have, is that right, Caroline yeah, well, Beaton? Real, That's your industry name. Yes. Well, no, it's it's not completely. When you say real, it's like I've had a sort of complete reinvention and come up with a new name. So I was always called Callie as my kind of family pet name. People who knew me well, boyfriends, parents, brothers, gotcha. would call me Callie. But yes, Caroline is my birth name, and the reason I used Callie when I started to do stand up was because I didn't want people in the corporate world world to know I was doing stand-up. So I just thought I wasn't instantly visible when I was Callie. The interesting thing there to me is that one of them is your real name. So which one of them is your real name to you? Which is that is like, do you remember the superhero thing? Which was the corporate person, the performance and the stand-up comedian is the real person? Oh, you're good, Stu Goldsmith. It's like you've done these. Mate, we're four four. minutes in. Come on. (laughs) Jesus Christ. All right, Samuel Beckett. Well, uh, no. So I think it's really interesting you say that because I picked Callie as a practical solution to a corporate conundrum. And I then ended up realising that everyone who calls me Callie is fond of me. So until I became a comedian when everyone calls me Callie. So for me, it was a really lovely thing that everywhere I'd go, I'd feel like a sort of, oh, warmth, and they're calling me Callie. That means they like me. Obviously, I know rationally that wasn't the case. So I, um, so it, so in answer to your question, Callie now completely feels like the name everybody calls me. It was always the name that people close to me called me. And now I've only got a few people who call me Caroline. So corporate people 
sometimes call me Caroline, but even they know I'm Callie and see me out on social media and stuff. So even people who knew me as Caroline call me Callie. And I've just got the only people who call me Caroline are a few really old, close friends. I've got a few girlfriends who just knew me as Caroline and they still call me Caroline. And I always feel like I've done something wrong. Like they're telling me off when they're like, Caroline, I'm like, oh, sorry. Because at home, it was always that you've done something wrong. You're Caroline. Yes. Okay. And there's something quite, there's something rather elegant there because um, if it used to be the case that Callie was the name that made you feel you were safe and in company and people knew you, and now everyone calls it you because it's your stand-up name, I wonder if that is, that sort of reflects the fact that you are now more exposed. Do you know what I mean? It's no longer that, like, you're more exposed as a comic because I, we'll get into the kind of corporate background in a bit. I'm sure that has all sorts of vulnerabilities and exposing moments and everything that I don't even begin to understand. But the fact of like your name and your identity being something whereby you are really sharing details of your real life to people who are calling you Callie, and that must flag up that they're not necessarily your friends. They're people that you now have to win over yes. and go on stage and, you know, go in a club gig and, and win people over yeah. by exposing yourself. Exactly. And I think if anyone had said I would be making a living out of winning people over by exposing myself 10 years ago, I would have said that is not going to happen. So to look at this at a more, at a real level, what I honestly think has happened, if we're going to go Freud about it, is that... I started out wanting to act and be on stage. And as a child and a teenager, that was all I wanted to do. And right through studying drama at Goldsmiths, that's what I thought I would do. I thought I would present and act. And then I ended up getting into the corporate world and we can talk about how and why. And I didn't really think I would make a success of that. I didn't ever plan to end up in boardrooms and that was never my plan. And... It was only when I got back to doing, when I got into doing comedy, that I realised that the more you have a glossy facade, the more people don't connect with you. They don't want to see someone up on stage who looks all glossy and sorted. Or if you look glossy and sorted, you've got to pull the rug quickly and go, but I'm not. And actually, it's almost like I hid Callie for about 30 of my 50 years on the planet and that side of me's come out and it's coincided with some quite immense work on myself as a person as well. So none of that is a funny answer, but that is probably an authentic answer to your question and your observation. Um, you uh, delivered that very professionally and I just want to make sure, like, I, I, I get where you're coming from. You've had therapy this morning and I I know that part of the part of why people enjoy listening to and perhaps being on this show is to go oh let's have some pretend therapy now from yes. a, you know a completely untrained man um but um talk me through talk me through that thing about exposing yourself and and the point you just made because you kind of wrapped it up very neatly and it made me think oh i i don't know if this is something you want to share because you sort of said you kind of caveated it several times made a point and then p tied a bow in it at the end, I've made I a career out of making a point and tying a bow in it, Stuart. That's that's been my life. Yes, I'm. No, I'm really happy to talk about it, and um, and I'm really happy to talk about the fact that I've I've had therapy because I've had a lot of therapy in my life. So, um, it, in answer to what I think you're asking, it, it, it I think it, so. I've just been just. I'll, I'll sort of wind back a bit. 
that I'm sure you've heard of the U-shaped happiness curve, right? So this is the theory that from your mid-20s through to your late 40s, you get progressively and incrementally less happy. This is my okay. way of getting revenge on all those young comedians going, I've got it all, Kelly. I'm like, but have you? And then that curve then starts to go upwards again from your 50s right through to your 80s. And there's a lot of research around this. This isn't a sort of newfangled idea. And I would say that my life absolutely followed that U-curve to uh, T, although I know that's mixing my letters. <laughs> uh, so I, because, yeah, things definitely. So I did my first gig at 45 and had, I guess, somewhere between a burnout and a crisis about 47 that lasted about three years. So I have been finding out who I actually am on and off stage simultaneously. And I would say that my comedy has got much better since the gap between those things has got less, which will be no surprise to you and people listening. Yes. Okay. The gap between those things has got less. The gap between the, your real self and your performative self. So what kind of mistakes? Let's not call them mistakes. No, let's what call them mistakes, Jim. Well, you no, early I, on. Well, no, no, no. I don't think it's fair. I mean, I'm, and certainly I wouldn't accuse you of or anyone of making mistakes. I don't think that's useful language to talk about it. But like what kind of things feel truer now? And what, what things weren't so true maybe in, in the early part of your comedy career? So in the early part, I, I did well quickly on a certain level because I was polished as a performer. So things like mic technique, holding a room, getting up there and seeming like I was comfortable, those all came very naturally to me. So things that a lot of, it was almost the other way around from a lot of open micers. So I think lots of open micers have got some, albeit raw, good ideas. They've got a bit of a sense of what they want to say, but perhaps don't come across too plausibly to begin with. There was nothing very messy about my act. It was polished. It looked slick. My writing wasn't terrible, but it was fairly hack, as I guess everyone's is in the beginning. And I, it actually really held me back from learning how to write and taking risks because I could hide behind that. So I got rewarded in competitions. I got, you know, bits of telly really early on. I was, it was, it was, I got things very early on that made me also think, oh, I think I'm all right at this. And then it was only a couple of years in, I realized how quite not all right at this I was. And I stopped sort of drinking my own Kool-Aid. So I don't I, th I don't think I was showing much of who I was on stage. I was showing who I thought the audience would want me to be. And as an example of, it's funny, on my therapy, um, in my therapy session this morning, we were talking about me having finally grown up, like me finally actually being my age and coping with the world as a woman in my 50s instead of still always acting like I'm 22. And one of the things I have done this very week is aged myself up. I have admitted my age on stage before. In fact, it's part of my act. My show Invisible was about turning 50. So I wasn't pretending I wasn't 50. But I've never admitted my children are in their 20s because I thought it was such an alienating thing to say. And I thought as soon as I say that, you know, I was at Top Secret last night. That people in the audience are younger than my children. And they're, I thought, I kidded myself, they'll just switch off. But I found a way now to say it and then have a really strong gag on the back of saying it, which then obviously gets is my get out of jail. And I've done three gigs, that's all, where I admit my kids are in their 20s. And I, the gigs went really well. And I think it was because from the, from the gates, I, I wasn't bullshitting and pretending I've got young kids anymore. So that is a very stark example of something a bit more subtle that's been going on. 
That's a, such a good example. And the interesting, I wanted to talk to you about Top Secret. There's a, there's a clip of you in 2019 at Top Secret on your website. Mm-hmm. And something I noticed that the audience did was they love the fact that you're older. All of those young people, and it's an incredibly diverse crowd in every respect is one of the things that club is so brilliant for. Um, so there are young people and older people. But when you talk about being so I'm a, I'm a woman dating in my 50s, the place goes mad. Yeah. There's like loads of this, like there's that you go girl energy. Yes. And I wondered whether you will get back to the, this is a sort of tangential point. I wonder whether that feels good to you or whether you find it patronising yes. to have teenagers or maybe not teenagers, people in their 20s are like, yeah, it's almost like they're going, go on, mum. You can still <laughs> do it. Yeah, yeah. You're like fun, auntie. So I think um, it's a good question. I like the fact that I very often now get people who come up to me after sets. And it's funny, I should have um, if we, I should have actually sent you my set from last night at Top Secret because it probably would have mm. shown you exactly what the journey's been in those two years. One of the things that happens when I do young clubs, which are many clubs that we do, is people will come up to me afterwards and they'll say, this increasingly happens, uh, particularly women, but men as well will say, oh my God, my mum would love you. Like she, so I get that. And, and people say to me, God, don't, and I, I like that because what that to me, they are, they are usually people who seem to quite like their mums. And I kind of, you want them, you want the audience to feel like, you know, they're your mate. You know, we all want that, that they feel like, you know, yeah, I really know you and you'd be someone I'd want to hang out with and, or I'd want around me and my orbit the bit that it's not really a straightforward answer to your question but it's not so much about being patronized by an audience it's that my act has always been look at me I'm kind of defying stereotypes and you know don't assume women my age aren't having sex with like hot men and doing really fun things so a bit of a sort of um to say it's a kind of cougar act I think is is, diminishes it a bit I think that's I think Steve Bennett might possibly have said that but let's not get into (laughs) Steve Bennett but I guess there I do live a life that probably isn't typically what people what people think women my age's lives are like and and that's partly because they don't know enough women my age, because my friends all live sort of slightly similar lives to mine. But it's more nuanced than that. It's darker than that. It's more vulnerable than that. I'm not a kind of massively sexually confident, go kind of, you know, be a predator in the world sort of person. So it's it's about bringing that side of myself into some other sides as well. But you're right. I do think people... I actually think people are just interested in a different life phase, right? So when you're when you're talking about stuff... Um, in, in uh, re- really the view from where you are. So I'll talk about dating and I'll find someone who's single in the audience and, and they're ine- inevitably a lot younger. I'll pick someone a lot younger and, and they'll be an attractive 25-year-old. And I'll say, so what's it like for you? What app are you on? What's going on? And then I will go, let me just give you an insight into what this is like for me right now. And of course, that is interesting because people are thinking a bit, oh, God, maybe there are people who are still single at that age and shit, I might still be having horrible experiences on Hinge when I'm her age. And then they're like, it's like the ghost of Christmas future. They're like, oh, please tell. <laughs> like a slow train crash that might happen to them. There's so much going on there, isn't there? There's their expectations. There's when we bring in that that thing that you were talking about before about the like being honest and telling the actual truth. And even as you said then, the... Um, it is darker than that and it's and it's richer and it's more complex but you also have a not darker you know but there's it is certainly more layered than hey i'm as old as your mum and i'm still banging yeah, do you know what exactly. i mean like that that's a very Although that's that a very is the name of my next show <laughs> <laughs> um, and i think um i think that's interesting about how you would 
Like you, you have in some of the, the the sets I've seen you before, and we've done no work to set you up as an act. And one of the let's just spend two two minutes doing that now. I saw your show in 2019, which was called Invisible, which was mm-hmm. your second second third, show. Yeah, second I, I went too early with my first, but we can come on to okay. that. Well, so I wish it had been my that. first. Okay, for sure. That was that was 2019. Yes, and and then we've also uh, interacted regarding the corporate space and the yes. speaking space and things like that, which we can perhaps get into. Um, uh, and then we gigged recently, uh, just before Christmas, mm-hmm. and I really was like, you know, we were all backstage thinking, oh, I don't know about this one, and they seem pretty tasty. And then you went out as the MC and absolutely battered them in a, in a way, that, and I don't mean that kind of necessarily digging into them and having a go at them, although that possibly that formed a, a part of it. But it really, like, five minutes in. I had a sigh of relief backstage. I was like, oh, because I didn't know that you had, I'd seen an Edinburgh show, I'd seen Mm. snippets here and there, but I really was like, oh, wow, you are very strong and confident and kind of bouncing this room up and down in such a way that, and I said this to you on both uh, both nights of that weekend, you just made it playable. You took a really, yeah, it was really pro stuff. And I know, I know how pro you are, but of course you, your comedy career exists in a sort of, uh, in this unusual framing, I suppose, which is that you have come to it uh, later than most, and you've come to it after a after a very successful career. Like there are fewer people, I think. I think there are probably some people that come to comedy later in life, maybe much later in life, um, but not always from the perspective of having been a success. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There are like you you see kind of people maybe on the open mic circuit who are a bit older, and you sort of think. Crikey, they might have not necessarily been a, a mm-hmm. shiny kind of corporate success elsewhere. And I know that that corporate work for you involved not just being kind of board level executive, but also speaking and, you know, mm-hmm. like presenting stuff, hosting and mm-hmm. doing all of those things to, to a high level. So I wanted to kind of get all of that said before we now mm-hmm. dig into the minutiae of, uh, of the experience of being on stage in front of younger people, trying to accurately and kind of honestly represent the reality of it when perhaps all there is is that let's get into it this way round you mentioned there was a moment you mentioned kind of obliquely that there was a moment when you realized or an experience when you realized that you weren't perhaps being as honest on stage as you could have been so let's talk about that moment and then and then its ramifications yeah and 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 sort of as a as a um kind of prologue to that what you saw me do as an MC the reason that probably I think what you're saying very nicely is you've seen me do a few things and that was the moment where you thought oh yeah you've got you've got all right at this now and well yeah I mean I know it's not as as black and white as that sort of but it was it's kind of stripes as a comedian yeah no I get it I get it yeah yeah I get it and and also you're you're right like I'm very if there's one thing I get you know I've worked in comedy my entire career if there's one thing I know it's what I don't know there's I'm under no illusions about where I'm at ever you know I'm I'm full of humility about where I'm at as a comic and I always will be but I'm certainly a very baby comic still and I'm very aware of that but what you saw me do then is the thing I do most comfortably which is a the most authentic thing I do when I'm emceeing it's much more me and I'm also very much more confident in those environments because I've been hosting rooms, albeit corporate rooms, but I've hosted rooms with thousands of people in high stakes environments with big stars on the stage for years. So I don't feel, I, I think one of the things when you're emceeing a rowdy crowd is I'm the grown up in the room, I am driving the train. 
mm-hmm. I've got this. Don't don't try it. And in a room where you're full of like work dues and every, I mean, it was it was sold out, wasn't it? And everybody was pissed. And mm-hmm. it was work dues one night, family groups the next night. Kind of your average absolute nightmare. And eating food banqueting style with their tables turned away from the stage. Um, so I just think all they needed to know was there was a grown up over and above being funny. I mean, hopefully I was funny, but that that wasn't well, the first. No, yeah. you certainly had the authority, but you were also funny. You you can you you can't survive with simply authority. No, that's true. They like don't that. want a scout leader coming in. No, but, for sure, you yeah. had lots of short, appropriate, funny jokes, appropriate to the situation. Yes, exactly. Totally and, and I and I think, um, and we'll come to this when we talk about writing. But and that is also where I am funniest. My funniest stuff happens as an MC. But in terms of the. I don't know if there was a moment, there've been several moments where I've known what I was doing wasn't authentic, but I probably would, let's use the show, let's use Invisible as the example. So the reviews I got for Invisible and how I probably would have self-reviewed was that there was a massive disparity between my capacity as a storyteller, which I think is, I know I'm a good storyteller, that is how Mm. I make a living, whether it's corporate or, you know, all the various things I do, it's all storytelling. And my actual gag smithing, delivering jokes. It was almost like two shows, I think, if I look back at it. And the gags were fine, but they weren't, you know, oh, this is your debut show. We're really excited level of gags. But the storytelling probably was quite, quite good. And it had some good jokes in it. And I suppose what I've been trying to do since then, I was really proud of that show when it was a work in progress. And then when it became the final show, it just got polished up to a, bit of a fake level again something that didn't quite resonate I think if you'd seen it in Brighton and then seen it in Edinburgh you'd know what I'm talking about it was much better three months before and so the realization for me which has been in tandem with my own personal development has been personal development sounds like I've gone to school but you know work on myself which inevitably happens at my kind of stage in life has been you know what just fail sometimes don't you don't need to be glossy like it's taken me what have I been I've been going six years now six and a half years depending if you're including that's if you're including the sort of um, fallow pandemic years so it's not that long on stage and it it's literally only now Stu that I will go into a new material night those really really not shit ones because they're lovely but those really small rooms where it's open micers and a few randoms only now will I go in and do a full new 10 minutes without a single get out of jail fully this is new and it might be shit and the fact it's taken me this long to do that tells you a lot about how guarded I've been and it is paying dividends as you'll imagine well you might equally look at that the other way around and say it's only taken you this long to realize that because there are people who never realize that do you know what I mean like six years isn't like oh that took me so long to try and be authentic people spend their whole lives trying to be authentic and trying to be more authentic than that I'm just I just don't want to let you bash yourself for it taking you six years to kind of get your head around do that you know, you know what though the reason and you're right and again I, and I and I kind of check my privilege in this regard in terms of the, the kind of schooling I had before I came became a comedian of watching numerous names who are now massive comedians from open mic days through to when oh, we were yeah. so I so that's been the other side of my life particularly comedy central us where we would watch names like amy schumer from when she was a sort of support act struggling to get what she needed through to little spots on our shows through to you know massive Mm. output deal for her own shows so i'm under no illusions about what it takes and what the process is so when people were like i bet it was a surprise what the open mic circuit was like wasn't it after corporate life it's like not at all i knew what the open (laughs) mic circuit was like i didn't know what it was like to be one but i had a pretty good idea but i think it is i guess the bit that i do think um if i'm going to self-flagellate for a moment 
the bit that I do think I really missed out on was just taking more risks with my material and being willing mm. to be shit. I just wasn't willing to, of course I was shit on many occasions, but I wasn't willing to just try something that felt like it might be more exciting. And I have seen so many people who started when I started, who at the time probably seemed a lot worse and weren't getting the attention where mm. I'm like, oh yeah, you're bloody good now and you totally deserve everything you have. Yeah. So people who've just got a very natural voice voice and again someone like Sindhu as an example now she was never shit she was always really good but Sindhu and I started out at a very similar time and Sindhu's stuff was much looser she was much more willing to just go into a room she's got real status on stage people do listen to her and she's happy to go I'm in charge you're listening which I always really admire about her but she really would just try stuff and brilliant stuff came out of it so she's the polar opposite of how I approached it and she rightly has got a very distinctive voice that people want to hear. So this is Callie. I, I think if I were to say that we uh, think similarly, I would be doing her a disservice <laughs> because she's sort of light years ahead of me in terms of kind of experience and thought. She's light years ahead of me in terms of the ability to articulate the things in which she is light years ahead of me. She's just a really kind of just one of those force of nature people who just seems to have done everything. And um, it is... Uh, an enormous relief to me that even someone as uh, forthright and experienced and intelligent as Callie still has a shocking time with their mental health. I, I hope she wouldn't mind me saying that. But you know, when you see someone who's like, well, they're a winner. I, oh, you're messed up too. Thank God. Um, a bit of hope there for the rest of us. More on this, uh, more from this interview with Callie coming up shortly. A um, couple of little shout outs as I sit here in. Uh, Covid, let's call it Covid heaven, not Covid hell. I mean, you know, the family are here and I'm uh, doing this in front of some washing in uh, uh, the corner of my bedroom uh, as we attempt to all happily coexist. Um, uh, but from here in Covid heaven, let me look out to the future and see some of the things that are turning up uh, once I return to being able to travel and walk amongst humans. Honestly, I, this has got to be, assuming uh, Boris goes through with his... Uh, insane plan to relax all the restrictions for the sake of distracting us um then i feel like this is the last week isn't it this is the final week in which isolation is uh uh legally mandated i think probably nearly everyone i know will continue to isolate in the case of covid um but uh yeah god it's anyway let's not get into that the point is I nearly got away with it and i would have if it wasn't for you pesky uh virus I was going to say cells. I've not done a reading. Neither of you. Right. Um, let's get back to this. I was going to give you a general shout out of some stuff I'm up to. But to be honest, I haven't got time <laughs> because it's all a bit hectic this week. Normal service will be resumed next week. I think we've got slim. That's a cracker of an episode. Look forward to that one. Um, let's get back to this conversation with Callie Beaton. Do you think that your um, fears about being shit, unwillingness to risk and to risk being really shit in the early part of your stand up career is to do with the fact that if you look at just that example that you've said of Sindhu, she came from a totally different. She came from finance, amongst other things. And you modelling. From, and, what hasn't yeah, she done? Yeah, She's yeah, kind she of does. an annoying person uh, to compare she myself to. She doesn't mention the modelling so often because, hey, she doesn't need to. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, the, um, but the fact is you were working in comedy. 
Yes. And, you know, it, it wasn't, as you say, it was in, in understanding development deals. So so seeing people of the calibre of Amy Schumer as sort of rank outsider newbies and seeing them improve and increase and what have you, in some ways that must have given you a template for, hey, I just, I'm rubbish and then I get better. That's how it works. I've seen that happen. But also presumably, I, I would guess that there was, there was pressure you would apply to yourself because like... It's not just like you've you've done a complete switcheroo. You might think you well, you're entitled to make mistakes if you've come from finance because you don't know anything about comedy. Probably, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming there was a little voice in your head that said, "Come on, Callie, you know about comedy. You should be you should be better than this." I probably and that was, got in the way. Is yeah, that right? I was probably always comparing myself without thinking about this to the people who, at the very least, so again, sorry to keep talking about Comedy Central US, but for people listening over here in the UK. It, they are very, very different in terms of their commissioning brief. So a lot of their stuff is originated programming. So low, and they've got much bigger budgets than the UK have for originations. And so they didn't, it wasn't like an official program, but they're, it's a little bit less like that now over there. But what they would do is they would literally have Comedy Central executives in all the clubs, um, particularly in LA and New York, regularly looking out for the acts who were breaking through from the, certainly to the sort of 10 spots through to the 15s, through to the openers, you know, they'd be tracking those comics and they would, have shows that were like Comedy Central Presents with lots of little spots for comics who weren't that mm. experienced. They were probably the sort of confident middles kind of level of comics. And then they would move them through. They would have lots of different shows that would work for those comics up until they were getting sort of bigger, some of them their own shows. So probably I was unwittingly comparing myself, at least to those people who were getting the spots on the compilation shows, which mm. as we know now would probably be someone who's now been doing it as long as I've been doing it. I might now be ready to start getting spots on comedy. Yes, gotcha. But I, so I probably did think I should be at least at the entry level of television when I did, I didn't yeah. think it in terms of I'm entitled to this. It wasn't that. I probably just set myself up as that was the bar. And I've definitely weirdly, I don't, maybe this isn't weird. You talk to so many comedians, you can tell me. I was thinking I used to always, when I would, wherever I would travel in the world. So my corporate career took me all around the world. I had people who worked for me all around the world, but I was based in London. So I would travel all the time. Every week I was on a plane. And wherever I would go, once I was a comic, I would find gigs and I would always do them. And I'd always do them in secret to anyone sort of senior in the company. But I did usually have mates in any office who were more my kind of people and they would know. And I'd usually go with a couple of mates wherever I was, you know, Singapore, New York, Miami, wherever. And I was thinking, God, I had the confidence then as a brand new comic to bring mates from work to my gigs. Now I feel far more exposed. When people say, oh, do you, I want to come and see you, I'm always thinking, oh, don't. So I don't know what changed, but I think I must have had some sort of newcomers. I didn't, I don't think I did really believe in myself, but I don't think I realised quite how not good I was, maybe. I don't know. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I maybe didn't realise how not good I was. Because at the time, if you weren't genuinely giving of yourself and making yourself genuinely vulnerable and exposing and talking about the real shit, if at the time you were doing, you know, you're smart and you're quick and you're confident, you have authority... Um, so you were doing short, punchy jokes, which I know you're capable of writing, and thinking, hey, this is great. Yeah, come and see me. Come and see me do my jokes. We and, and now I guess it sounds like looking back on that, you're kind of appreciating that, yeah, the stuff I was doing, not that it was fake, but that it wasn't real, real. Do you know and now more? it's real, real. You don't want people to, to share in the the kind of 
the forging of the stuff because you might if you're doing real real stuff you're going to make mistakes you're going to overreach you're going to fuck up you're going to not be funny you're going and to be fail. very far the other thing is on a on a cynical marketing level my co- comedy is increasingly far from my corporate voice so there's also that that's why if you have yeah. tried looking for much of my, my stand-up there's very little out there because okay. it is it, uh, there's nothing worse than I do not want you know KPMG to be thinking about booking me for a keynote and then going oh but we did <laughs> see you talk about giving a blowjob to a bloke who was having chemotherapy and we don't really think that's what our audience want so I'm quite careful <laughs> and, and, about and they wouldn't they probably wouldn't say that to you they just they go just, quiet and like, you'd you know be like what, what? Like. <laughs> you'd never even know it was a lead you just would never yeah. hear about yeah. it from beginning to end but I do think it's um it it, it wasn't actually it, it, even more than the I think some of my gags were all right early on, although I'm very unconfident as a writer, but I do think I sort of happened. And I had a few sort of interesting things to talk about, you know, having an autistic kid, being somebody a little bit kind of older, some of the things that I I can't remember, you know, sleeping with women as well as men. There were things that were, I know that's not fascinating, but I had a few things to say that weren't uninteresting and I have lived a life. Actually, as much as the material was a bit hack, inevitably, like it is for lots of us at the start, but my delivery as well. I, I think now I've got to the point where I'm a bit more confident. I can, you know, that, that thing of, I can't remember who said it, you know, you're a Billy Connolly, you know, you're, you're a funny person saying things, not a person saying funny things. Yeah. And I think I'm getting more towards the former, you know, more to being a funny person where I possibly could sell something a bit shit while I'm working on it because I see I'm funny enough to get away with it, whereas I completely hid behind my material and delivered it in a very unauthentic way, I think. Yes. Do you Did you need to unlearn some of your experience of being... Did you need to unlearn some of your authority? I had to unlearn so much, and I still am. I mean, in life and in comedy, I am unlearning a life spent getting rewarded for things that weren't very comfortable, but that I pretended were comfortable. So when I do corporate speeches, and as you know, um, a large amount of my corporate work, I do a lot of awards awards hosting and a few kind of um, turns as a comic in the corporate world, but more often I'm booked as an after-dinner speaker or a keynote speaker. And my I've got lots of different talks I do, but a sort of important one to talk about quite early on is the idea of the reason I get booked as a corporate speaker is because I was, you know, I was the youngest and only female member of the ITV board alongside, you know, David Cameron. I brought South Park to the world. You know, I've done things that sound, um, you know, good to people who don't know people who've done good things. And I, I think in terms of that, so what I always, one of the stories I very often tell at the start of my corporate things, one is about being a girl in a boys school and which is true um, and what that and that sort of I don't say too much about it but I let, let that be out there and the fact that I was a fat ginger kid with glasses and corrective footwear you know that's how it started out so immediately they're like oh right you're not that smug and then the next story I tell I fast forward 20 years and say and then I found myself in this boardroom um, because I ran a production company that got bought by a massive company and I then say, you know, that is why you've booked me because that all looks great on my CV. And now I'm a comedian. Isn't that great? But actually, I don't see that time as successful. I split up with my kid's dad when I was in that boardroom at ITV and it was completely connected. You know, I couldn't cope with everything I was trying to pretend I knew how to do. So I spent a lifetime pretending I knew exactly what I was doing and being incredibly uncomfortable, but not admitting that at all, not even to myself. And then with life implodings, taking up comedy, making profound changes, there's something going on on and off stage. And I don't want to be, you know, too too much of a dick about this. You know, everybody's going through their version of this. But there is something that's 
in terms of unlearning, I think the way I would say it, whether this is comedically or not, is you have strategies that work really well for yourself in life on and off stage until they reach their sell-by date. And you can get really rewarded for things that might be the lazy route or the route because you're too scared to do it differently or you're scared of being found out or you really need to earn the money because you're supporting a family. And those things will serve you so well until they don't. And when they don't, the universe will give you a bloody big sign that they're not working anymore and you don't know when that's going to happen so to be open to unlearning as you go through life especially at an age like mine where sometimes people get very much like themselves and aren't willing to get less like themselves I think it's massively important and it's a huge privilege by the way it's frightening as well, but it's a huge privilege to get rid of all that supposed status I, I had. You know, I, I was flying in the front of planes and being treated like I mattered, at least in the corporate world. And if I'd go to Edinburgh, I'd been invited to the right places because people wanted me in there because I was an executive from Comedy Central uh, to, to like having to beg my way into the shittest open mic night and trying to get to the Dave party because I don't work for them anymore, you know. And, and, and it, but it's also a massive privilege for your world to get bigger at a time in life when many people's worlds are getting smaller. So it is, it's a huge privilege to unlearn things at this stage. Was it the show? Was it Invisible that was the moment that I asked about earlier on? If was there it was the a... show? Was it the reviews? Was it something else? Was it... Well, it was a real weird one because I didn't get, that was one of the really upsetting things about Invisible. I didn't get any reviews until the end. Like just nobody came through the door and that's another story. And that was so depressing. And then I finally got four stars from the Scotsman on my last day of the show, which at that stage in my, and it was a really lovely review. And and I literally, I I came out of Richard Herring's, I'd done Richard Herring's um, podcast and I came out of the recording for that. And then there was the review sent over to me by someone. And I literally cried. I stood outside whatever whatever the theatre was we'd recorded and I, I literally cried because I thought it's it's not about, of course, it's lovely to get, you know, and there's people who've got five stars from the Scotsman. It's lovely to get a strong review from one of the you know places we want a good review from. But it was more that until then, I'd so lost my confidence in the show inside and there'd been no external. I mean, I was selling out, but as you know, that that's that's not, it was a smallish room and I've done bits of telly and radio. So that, that's not really a testament to the show. And so I think the realisation I had, it wasn't necessarily, oh, that bit of the show is hack. Um, although I was aware there were bits that I just didn't really want to say by the end of it. Maybe we all have that. Um, but it was more, if I'm going to make the sacrifice of coming to Edinburgh that we all make, and I'm incredibly fortunate that I haven't got 10 grand to lose on Edinburgh. No, you know, I didn't do so well that I'm like, oh, it doesn't matter. I do need to think about it. And I also lose corporate earnings if I go to Edinburgh, which are my main thing, <laughs> my main way to earn. So it's, but it, but I'm not on the level most people are on where they're like, shit, I'm going to be paying that off for the next three years if I get in debt. So I'm incredibly lucky with that. But if you're going to put yourself through Edinburgh and if you're going to put yourself through those months leading up to Edinburgh where you are working on the show, doing hundreds or you know tens of previews, digging really deep, you've got to be actually doing it because it's your voice. So when I looked that that year that I did Invisible, um, there were a couple of shows where I was like, this is the most phenomenal gap from where I am to where they are, but even in intention. And Jess Foster Cues was probably the one. It was when Hench did so well. And I went to that show twice. And of course, I'm not as good as Jess Foster Cues. She's brilliant and she it's hard one. But I looked at that show and I looked at what I was doing and I was like, as a sort of model, 
of what I'd like to be able to do in my way. That's where I want to be. And that is not what Invisible was. So it was it was that moment of realisation that whether or not I could get by as a comic, which I think I kind of can, I get I get booked well, but what, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? What's the point of giving up a successful career because I want to try something if I'm not willing to properly try it, which includes being shit at it? Like, what, why am I taking shortcuts and conning myself so it's not really about audiences. It was like, stop bullshitting yourself. This isn't what you tried to do. Is is there, thank you. Is there a, is there, um, is there an element to the corporate world as you experienced it, which involves bullshitting to other people and bullshitting to yourself about who you are, like adopting a corporate world persona whereby, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I've never had a salaried job, but I would guess that people everywhere in any situation need to they feel that there's a version of them there's the, their true selves which isn't acceptable somehow they're not really real and then they kind of put on the work persona and they go hey yes i'm on top of it it's fine and then every so often they close their laptops and look out the window and shed a tear and go oh christ no no no, no i'm fine yeah. and then crack back on now obviously that's a yeah it's not a broad it's, generation for anyone who's ever did had I, a did i turn into david brent for a bit when i was in boardrooms uh, is the question no so 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 it's a really interesting question and so the way I was in corporations was always a bit of a kind of disruptor in terms of sort of way the way I did things. I was never quite the standard voice in the room, not least because of gender and age a lot of the time. Luckily, that's changed to a degree, although not as much as we might like. But um, so, so I was willing to be who I was and at risk of alienating people, which I sometimes did. So I was not willing to sort of toe the line. And that there were a few reasons I've left a couple of jobs. And I won't say too much in detail because it'll be clear which jobs I'm talking about but where just sort of morally things got to the point where I was like I do not want a part of this anymore and it got sort of very political or toxic and I just thought I don't like the way this company is going and I do not think I should be in the senior management position here but every job I've gone to you know I worked I've worked for some massive you know US studios big commercial broadcasters in the UK and there is an element of you being part of something that isn't particularly nice all the time. It's not particularly that things happen in big organisations that aren't particularly nice or kind sometimes. And I, the way I justified it to myself, which I think was fair in a way, was that I did do an enormous amount in corporate life um, to, to help the culture of companies. So I did a lot for my staff and those around me and set up, you know, um, sort of alliances where people who didn't have voices got voices. So I knew I was a positive influence in companies where perhaps not everybody was. So in that regard, I felt very much like myself. And I, I did my master's in neurolinguistic programming when I was on the board of ITV. And I got into all that emotional intelligence coaching type stuff when I was at that level. The bit that I think in my case, I never, I never thought, I never thought, oh, I'm a senior vice president at Viacom CBS. I thought I've borrowed that job title. And at the moment, I'm sitting at the front of the plane, but there will be a time when I'm not and when no one gives a shit. So I never thought I was that person. I never was going on holidays to the Four Seasons Hotel. We lived in a way that wasn't beyond, we never had flash cars. You know, we lived in a way that wasn't sort of beyond our means. I always, my parents are teachers. We didn't have any money. I didn't think I was somebody because of that job. So I didn't buy into that, but I did pretend 
not to be vulnerable. I never admitted, you know, I look back at it now, I'm like, how did I do that with two really tiny children and the things I went through sometimes that were going on at home that were immensely difficult and challenging, like my, the whole period of my son getting diagnosed with autism. I didn't go into work and say to anyone who I worked for, listen, I'm really struggling with this. I need to take a bit of time to absorb this. I can't work 12 hours a day. I can't go on that trip to a board meeting in New York because I've just had the diagnostic meeting with my son and I'm in bits. I didn't, I just didn't tell anyone and I don't, didn't tell myself either. So I just, and it was when my son left home. So this is sort of does connect to what you're saying. I never admitted to myself there were chinks in the armor and it was when my son left home and raising my son has been the hardest but best thing I've ever done. But it has been challenging as anyone with a neurodiverse child will know. And when he went off to uni and he was going to be back every couple of weekends, it wasn't that far away. And I dropped him off at uni and it was my first child who'd left home, which is a massive thing. It's hugely emotional for everyone. He was 19. He'd taken a bit longer to get through his A-levels. And I remember just leaving this place. He, he went to study animals in this place that was like kind of Hogwarts with animals, very beautiful place in the middle of nowhere. And I drove away and I literally got rendered practically and emotionally inert by two things. One, the fact there was a cattle grid with a load of sheep standing next to it and I couldn't actually get out of the place. But even if they had moved, I just wept. And I had an almost, I think I did have an almost, I don't want to say PTSD because there'll be people listening who have suffered from PTSD, but I had an extreme emotional response, which then derailed me in a much bigger level than just my son leaving home. So all of that pretending I could cope in corporate life and as a single mum, it all just the chicken. There's a quote in um, Habeas Corpus, whoever wrote that. Um, is it? Who wrote that? Um, I'm anyway. going to say Alan Bennett. Alan Bennett. If I'm yeah. wrong. <laughs> yes, it is Alan Bennett. So Habeas Corpus, and there's a quote in Habeas Corpus. Um, the sky was dark with the wings of chickens coming home to roost. And that summed up what was going on in my life at that point. So it's a really long way of saying, yes, some people do really buy into the fact that they're, you know, the, the kind of the hot shot and they really are the person, especially in telly. It's stuffed full of swagger and ego. I never felt like that, but I did think I could not show weakness or vulnerability in any way on or off off the corporate stage so yeah that it it was a and perhaps being in a very glossy confident competent world exacerbated that and I needed to keep working you know I was a single mum so I, I did need the money Is there anything so far that we've talked about whereby you have felt yourself be inauthentic? Like felt yourself in the habit of being buttoned up and delivering? I suppose it's always, I, I, it's what you say about the kind of glossy, I'm always sort of thinking, how can I convey this in a way that is most likely to land okay? So I suppose that's the sort of, so that it's almost like one, one. and it's, well, it's funny when you say that, I remember at, at my boys' boarding school, I was on the debating society. I was, I was on it and it was, it was a quite a posh school and I was only there because my parents worked there. We, we weren't, we weren't, um, moneyed and posh ourselves, but which is also a bit of a head fuck when you're in a school like that and you don't, not even for mm. money. But, um, but the, yeah, I remember being in the debating society and how great it felt when I could out talk these really posh boys that had had nothing but privilege. And I learned to sort of whip their ass on a debating floor. And I think I overly use my, you know, it's, it's, 
what I say and how I say it isn't how I feel, but that's not me faking it. It's just how I've learned to kind of be. So even in therapy, I, I really curate it. You know, I really, I, I, I'm a very, you know, nice person to give therapy to, but that's not really the journey, is it? You're not supposed mm. to come in and tell a beautifully curated story. So I, I, I find it quite hard to get close to people. So am I sitting here thinking, oh God, I feel really close to Stu and his listeners. And I'm really, I feel like I'm being really honest in the storytelling, but am I actually emotionally really letting myself in? Probably not completely, but then maybe not many people do over, <laughs> over Zoom on a podcast. I don't know. Hmm. I'm just going to think about that for a while whilst imposing some <laughs> silence. <laughs> you should be a therapist. That's very much what my one did earlier. <laughs> Only without the explanation. It just went quiet. Oh, I haven't got the O-levels. Um, um, I haven't got any O-levels. I'm not that old. <laughs> O-levels, <laughs> that's got the young people with us, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. I, just, I just remember it from did some you do show. My dad used to say, no, no, no. I just The phrase, I haven't got the O-levels. I don't know where I've got it uh, from. But no, I was going to say, you're too, I did the very, the, yeah. the, the, cut this bit out. I did, the very <laughs> la, I did the very last year of O-levels. So my year was the last ever year. Let's just air that and see what people make of it. <laughs> How would it feel if we did that? Would that feel okay? <laughs> I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because I do curate what's out there in the world. That's why podcasts are weird. So like when I do my own podcast, as I'm sure you do, you do listen back and you primarily edit for bits that, you know, went wrong or someone says, please don't mention my wife. But there's bits as well. Do you ever cut out bits where as an interviewer, you're like, I was just fucking annoying. Like, shut up. Do you ever cut yourself out because you annoy yourself? Good question. (laughs) Nicely turning it around to me. You're safe. Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah, I would say I did in the early days. I did in the early days. I try not to go, "Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I realised I was doing that a lot. Several people pointed it out kindly by email, and I don't do it so much. Right, but um, but let's get back to the <laughs> the point, which is not to do. And I, you know, we don't need to keep that in if you're concerned about it from an age perspective. No, no, it's fine. But but isn't that interesting? That's the that's the stuff, isn't it? Like the best bits of this show, the best bits of a comedy set, the best bits of emceeing are sometimes when. When it's real, we see the real person and learning to be, I mean, I, Jesus, I, I have had to, con, I have had to, and I'm continually unlearning now. All of the street performing stuff, all rah, 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 look at me, point over here. I'm Mr. Slick. I'm, do you know what I mean? All that stuff. It was wrong on the street. It's certainly wrong indoors. Mm-hmm, I had mm-hmm. to unlearn and unlearn and unlearn. Mm-hmm. And now I, I take such pleasure in getting things wrong and stuffing things up and, as long as they're still funny, you know, it's not all, I'm not sort of a psychopath. It's like, yeah, I'm going to drive this into the ground. I mean, that's an instinct sometimes as well. But I, I, I certainly that's think That's an instinct me- I can't imagine. I can't imagine it going really badly and me going, I'm going to keep going with the, I think it was um, yeah, Ben van der Velde, who's obviously got a, got a you know, um, big improv background. And he, he said to me when I was working on Invisible, he said, you know, when you're doing a show, I remember he came around for coffee when I was about to do a, a, a work in progress and he said the bit, and I said, there's a few bits here that I really like, but I just don't think they're landing. I don't think I can do them. He said, no, no, no. When they're like that and you really like, just keep going deeper into them. And the less you're getting, just go deeper and deeper. And when you've really gone deeper and deeper, and there might well be something right down the depths of that idea. Do not turn away when you get into, and it is the improv thing, isn't it? Go further with it. Don't go away from it and try mm. something that might be instantly funnier. So when you say, oh, I wouldn't ever drive a gig into the ground, although, yeah, I might. I wouldn't. I still don't think I could because I'm just such a bloody crowd pleaser. It annoys it annoys me how much I'm a crowd pleaser. I know that is the job, but yeah, it's some of the job. I mean, the thing is, we were talking about the MCing earlier on. You know, it is a real moment sometimes. 
sometimes it's one of us pretending that we've just thought of something, whereas actually we've said it 20 times before. An ad fib, as Richard Osman calls them. An, yeah, an ad yeah. fib, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, so there is reality to it, but the best bits are not the clever thing you say, necessarily. Best is, what does that mean? You know, it is art at the end of the day. You can't quantify it, no matter how many people try with competitions and measures of income and what have you. But it is art. So what's the... Like the the realest thing, the most textural thing, the most honest thing might not be the funniest moment, the most explosive laugh, but it might be the bit that people go away going, oh, that was, oh, yeah, that that thing. But then is that comedy, because I I almost felt like um, when I was getting those reviews in Edinburgh finally, when I got a couple in in the last week and the general feedback was, well, I know the storytelling worked really well, but is that that comedy I'm doing then or should I be a storyteller? Like what, what, that isn't really... A lot of my Edinburgh show didn't translate back into club sets because it wasn't that kind of stuff. Um, No, but I think the review, and I've read some of the reviews of that show and I saw that show and I, and I think, I think there was like the best bits about it were the storytelling Mm -hmm. and the jokes were functional, but the storytelling was so good. It was like, oh, that's a really real thing. Not because you're storytelling in this wonderful kind of theatrical way, but because you're telling us a real thing that happened and Mm. you're inhabiting it. And then the jokes seemed, Let's frame it as the reviews. I think the the reviews would sort of say that then the jokes aren't as real as that. They're not jokes about real things. They're jokes about life. And they're know, not as good as the story. You know, it was a, it was a well, good yeah, but story. What is, yeah. But what does what is good mean? You yeah. know, the, yeah, the story was good because a real thing happened, but it was honest and you told us an honest thing and we met you. And then the jokes were, you know, and I, I, let me talk about it in terms of myself because I'm not here to bash you, but... Like, I know that I've done stuff where there was a real bit and then I've kind of done some stuff because I was thinking, crikey, they haven't done a big laugh for ages. I'd better put something in and if it's cheap, who cares? Because wham, there's a big laugh. You're like, I've got to have a laugh every so many. I think it's I've got to have a laugh every so many seconds because otherwise I start to panic and lock up and go, oh my God, I'm not, I haven't got them. Oh God. And the the whole, the whole house of cards collapses and I go, maybe I'm a piece of shit. Maybe I shouldn't be here. Exactly. And then, and I've got another 42 minutes of this, which is a slightly scary thing. I do think there's, um, realize I'm still incredibly unconfident as a writer. And I was thinking last night when I came back from having done a couple of gigs at Top Secret and, you know, I was opening on their Thursday night show. So it wasn't a time to go full rogue and just go, fuck it, I'm trying to be authentic. I'll just say this. But I did do a few things that were quite different in both the shows that I'd only done once before on Monday night at a low a low stakes gig. And I did realise it's not that I'm shit at writing. I'm sit, I'm shit at sitting down with a pen and paper and writing something that's instantly funny. But can I go through the process of getting to something that in the end's good? Yes. But for me, it really is a process. And I'm, I'd be the worst person in a writer's room. I wouldn't be someone who's like knocking out really funny jokes about Boris Johnson's cheese and wine parties. I could come up with something passable, but I, I, I don't find writing... It's not my. I'm definitely a better performer than writer as a stand-up by some margin. I would say. What's at stake when you're on stage? Um, it's all personal for me. It's it's all about that personal feeling. Like the reason I do this isn't because um, it's not. It isn't money, and it definitely isn't fame. It's getting better. That's why I'm doing this because I want to keep getting better, and I don't really know why. Because I don't need. I don't. Why am I doing that? I could. I know I'm good at other things. Why? And I think it is about. Um, it genuinely is about wanting to get better. It's a bit like you know learning the piano. I, I learned the piano because I wanted to get better at it. You know. Um, I don't know why. 
it, well, I, I do know why. It's that fundamental thing that all perfectionists have, which is I judge myself so harshly that whatever I do won't be good enough and I'm going to have to keep cracking the whip until I do something that will finally convince me I'm worth something. Only as we know, that is a fool's errand because we're never going to get to that point because there'll always be the thing we didn't do. Yeah. And does it simply feed the beast to keep on trying, to keep on trying to be perfect and perfect and perfect because because then the beast will sleep? Yeah. I do a good enough gig and the beast sleeps. I've is been... that sustainable? I mean, maybe it is sustainable. We all die it's eventually. Not, no, it's, We've it's only got to keep it up for another 50 years. Yeah, <laughs> no, the perfection. So trust me, when I gave up the, 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 the proper job and went full time, I didn't really know what I was going full time to do, but I knew I was going full time not to have that job. And I knew comedy would be part of it, and it is. Um, it that was that was officially jettisoning perfectionism, and there there is little perfect about what I do. I have I have some confidence in myself as a corporate speaker, which you would hope I would have because I'm basically been training thirty years for that job. Uh, so you'd hope I might be all right at that. But um, that's that's about it, really. I'm I'm very terrified of most of the other things I do and I still honestly I don't know if I guess you probably don't have this and people who've been going longer than me maybe don't have it but I never ever go to a gig and turn up and go god these guys are lucky they've got me to see and this is going to be great and I'm always standing at the back of the room thinking uh, this could be the one where it all unravels every time I'm thinking that every, every time I MC, every time I gig, I have no, there's nothing in the bank of, oh, I've pretty much got this. I think I'm pretty solid. This will be good. I, I don't feel like that at all. I feel massively, um, yeah, full of self-doubt always. Do you have to fake it every time? It's not faking it because it clicks in, doesn't it? That I think that's the bit that changes is now from when I get on stage, I've turned up. So once I'm on stage, there's nothing fake about it because I'm actually, again, this makes me sound like a right tosser, but I'm, inhabit- I'm inhabiting the room. I, when they go, well, you're there, aren't you? You're totally present. You don't have to stick by this stage. We've got enough material. You don't have to stick with what you thought you'd say if it isn't working or something else happens. I've now lucky. You know, it's lovely when you get to the point you've got enough stuff. You're like, oh, I don't have to do my 20. I could do a different 20 or chop it up a bit. Um, so, so no, when I'm on stage, it feels like a sort of knife through butter usually, but it bloody well doesn't <laughs> on the way to the gig or waiting to go on. What's the joke that you've written that you are the most proud of? Or the I, one that you, either the one that you're most proud of or the one that you feel most accurately or is most honest, most authentic, let's say. Or it could be either. The joke I, the joke I like, which um, I think got picked for something in Edinburgh um, a couple of years ago, but, it, but it, it, I can't do it in rooms. It doesn't because it divides. Well, you'll say, okay, so the joke is, and I may forget how to say it because I haven't said it for ages. It's something, I talk about my son being neurodiverse and I talk about the fact he's autistic and then I talk about dyspraxia. I say, but actually, unusually, he's not dyspraxic. Um, put your hand up if you know what dyspraxia is and people put their hand up. And then I say, um, and if you've got dyspraxia, put your hand down, you'll have someone's eye out, which I like as a, I like it as a gag. I I think it's a good guy, but not enough people know what dyspraxia is. Um, yeah. <laughs> so half the room at best will be like, oh, that's really funny. And the other half will like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, <laughs> in terms of authentic stuff, yeah, I feel like I have got more into sort of, yeah. Or the, I mean, it needn't even be a finished bit, but the thing, the the furrow you are ploughing. The thing at the furrow. That suddenly sounded wrong. What, like, what's the bit that you've got at the yeah. moment where you're like, this is this is the current leaderboard of. What I'm ploughing at the moment is that um, 
having my kids has taught me everything about that I've ever needed to know and that's mattered apart from how now to be starting a chapter without them. So that's what I'm that that's where I'm at. So the um yeah, so so something about and in particular if I was working towards an Edinburgh show which I'm not right now, but I mm-hmm. so if I do an Edinburgh show it'll be um 2023 not this year. But it would be that it would be, you know, it would be sort of animal related because my son, obviously, I've learned, I know a lot about animals because my son is one of the world's foremost animal experts, particularly primates. But something about that looking at and looking at behaviours coded through primates and how to make sense of the world and, you know, um, you know, bonobo apes, which are matriarchal societies and the way that goes and how you get rewarded for being a female elder and all that stuff I know and all the emotional intelligence and everything that's gone. But I do not know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't know. How to navigate this and it is uh, extremely destabilizing and I suppose it's something about that so having had all those life lessons and and, and had all the answers only to realize I don't even know the bloody questions are you happy well it's it's funny time to ask me that because I've just I've just interviewed Helen Russell who wrote how to be sad um, which is a really book worth reading for your listeners Um, but actually that book just summed up it was a it's a good book, but it basically just summed up all the work I've been doing on myself for the last five years since I first started acknowledging that I do suffer from depression and that things haven't been very easy. And, you know, I've gone through the menopause and like most people who go through the menopause, you do slightly or more than slightly collapse at a certain point. Um, so I, I know this sounds like I'm dodging it. I honestly am not aiming for happiness. I'm aiming for equilibrium and balance and and just being resilient enough to keep going. That's and not tipping into depression. So if I'm if I've got sadness or loss or wistfulness or self-doubt, but it's all within the realms of what I can sit with in a sort of let it flow through you way, that's really good for me. And yes, I absolutely feel happiness and joy and play and all those things sometimes I feel loads of other shit so I'm not really aiming for happy I'm aiming for how to be sad better so that was Callie thank you very much to Callie for being on the show comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to join the insiders club for as little as two pounds a month or however much you feel happy paying uh, in order to get access to the slack workspace all the extra content from every show that has it and 25 minutes uh, from this interview uh, which we'll talk in which we'll talk about uh, uh, Callie's moment of realisation that it's okay to be flawed uh, her part in bringing South Park to the world and whether fuck'em is a useful mantra we initially disagreed but I think I won over um thank you once again to Callie. thank you to you for listening apologies for brevity we won't post amble today too much on and uh you know like food deliveries to organize and uh i've got a tripod oh i tell you what i bought the camera did you see my tweet about the incredible camera well i bought a less incredible but still really good camera but the tripod was worth the entire project it's got a little revolving ball in the center with a thing that goes back and forth through it so you can angle it so it's dangling and bending over my god oh happy man with my tripod but thanks to covid i'm running out of breath thanks to this sentence oh and those uh, dulcet tones in the background are telling me i've got other stuff to be doing so nope how do i turn that off like that 
No time to retake that. <laughs> Let's just crack on. Thank you to Callie. You can find out about Callie at CallieBeaton.com, I'm sure. I'm just going to say that on trust uh, because I don't have time to look it up. But, you know, Google her. She's fantastic. And also she's uh, able to help you close deals in a boardroom way. So if you're closing any boardroom deals, give her a shout. See if she's up for some freelance. Um, thank you to Nathan for editing and uploading and producing the episode. Uh, Jake Crossland was your logger. Podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing. Um, and thank God I've got COVID now before South by South. Southwest. Very exciting chats going on about the guests for that. Um, and as I said, Slim next week. And uh, also I am, you know, I broke my rule about uh, not mentioning that we had Daniel Rigby on the show before the episode was in the can. Had to reschedule it because of COVID. Absolutely textbook. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye.